Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. So how's everybody doing? Everybody well-rested? Nobody tired here this morning? How about in your soul? You know what? I, I looked this up, and in, in about 150 years ago, the average person, the average person, slept nine and a half hours per night. Nine and a half hours. Imagine. That was kind of the kind of rest people got 150 years ago. Now the figure is somewhere between six and a half and seven, and it's going down all the time. Newsweek quoted a mother of four about this. This is what she said. Listen carefully. I am so tired, my idea of a vacation is a trip to the dentist. I just can't wait to get there and sit in that chair and relax. So friends, I submit to you that when society has reached the point where people start looking forward to getting their gums scraped and their teeth drilled as a restoration type of activity, something has gone horribly, horribly wrong. I think we can all agree that that stress is a part of life, that unrest is a part of our life, if you will. If you don't have any of that in your life, you're probably not breathing. That's kind of where we're at these days. We need a certain amount of that in our life, a certain amount of stress to accomplish anything. Stress is actually what sort of keeps us motivated, keeps us pushing to accomplish things. However, for instance, if you take a guitar like the one behind me, you have to put stress on the strings in order to have it make a sound. If you stress it just to the right amount, it creates great music, great chords. On the other hand, if you tighten those strings too tight, they just snap, right? And here's a little quiz. If you're unfamiliar with this or you're not sure where you come in on the scale, I'd like you all to participate with me here. Group participation, just shout it out. We're going to complete these little phrases, okay? Just to test our awareness, okay? I'm all stressed. Out, yes. I'm all shook up. At the end, I'm at the end of my rope. I'm coming un, yeah, undone, unglued, whatever. I'm about to fall apart. I'm ready to throw in the towel. See, we're right on the mutton, man. We're all, we're all really good at understanding what stress is. We've all got these, we're pros, frankly, at it. But is the kind of direction God offers us also available to us to lead us through some of the intangibles that life throws our way? Things like anxiety, worry, fear, guilt, shame, all negative emotions created by the stress in our lives. Is it possible for us to walk through the mindful minefield of all these things to actually encounter rest in our lives? The only safe way through a minefield like this is by strictly obeying the directions of the one who's already gone through that minefield and swept the path clear over to the other side. The passage we're looking at in this series, Life from the Sheep Seats, is indeed such a set of directions. We often relegate it to the context of funerals and death. Uh, speaking of that, uh, it's totally aside, I came in, we had a funeral here a week and a half ago, and all the reserve for funeral signs that I guess were left by the funeral chapel were on my desk facing me when I came in. So I sat down, reserve for funeral. I thought, oh, is this, is this the day? I don't know. But we often think of Psalm 23 in that context, don't we? 
but in fact, it actually contains personal introductions to the one who has swept that minefield, that path through, and promises to safely lead us through all that we face in our lives all the time. In the context of Psalm 23, we need a shepherd to lead us through our life's journey. Coincidentally, as I thought about that this week, a lot of my stressful times have come immediately uh, when I've thought about journeys. I don't know about you. A number of years ago now, my wife Jennifer and I were about to fly down to Honduras on a missions trip. We received the travel itinerary, and I took just a brief look at it in the midst of the meeting to see, you know, what airlines we were using, where the connecting airports were, etc. Air Canada, American Airlines to Miami. And then my eyes flitted over to a couple of stops in Central America that I'd never heard of, and then I saw the airline, Taco Airline. Taco Airline. Now I'm thinking, Taco Airlines? Can, is not just exactly a trust-inspiring kind of name, is it? I pictured chickens running up and down the aisles and, and the smell of Tex-Mex, you know, kind of coming from the stand at the back of the plane. Despite my best efforts, I couldn't help but get a little stressed for Jennifer, who would be traveling alone now. <laughs> Later, I realized that Spellcheck had changed it from TACA, T-A-C-A, to T-A-C-O airlines, and that, at that point in time, it was a well-known, respected carrier in, in Latin America. Another time, Jennifer, Zach, and I were flying to Halifax to see our other son, Matt, play in the National Baseball Championships. As we were passing through the security check here in Winnipeg, the agent found a Swiss Army knife in Zach's backpack and held it up, looking at us accusingly for the entire airport to see, right? Stress. Zach didn't know it was there. He decided at the last minute to use his brother's knapsack, as it was a little bigger as a carry-on, and hadn't checked the pockets in advance. The agent said our only recourse was to go back down and check the knapsack into baggage and hurry about it. So off we go. More stress. We rush down. We rush back. We checked the knapsack into baggage. We rushed back up. We rushed back to the security point, and there we come into contact with the same two guys we had just seen a few moments ago at that same spot. They take us through the whole security thing again, but when they get to the IDs, Zach turns white. Anyone want to guess where his ID was? In the knapsack. Stress multiplied. Fortunately, having just received and reviewed his ID a few moments before, they finally let us pass. It was only as we were landing in Toronto where we had to change planes that it suddenly dawned on me that we have to go through another security check in order to board the next plane. I'm sweating now. We get to the next flight, and of course, we are immediately in trouble because, sure enough, they ask Zach for his ID before we can board. And you can imagine, you know, uh, that I start down this whole process of, well, you see, we tried to take a Swiss Army knife on the last flight. <laughs> so after much crying and pleading and weeping and gnashing of teeth, I finally let Jennifer take over and talk to the person. And here's what she did. She put all three of us in a line, me, Zach, and Jennifer, and she said, doesn't he look like us? <laughs> and they let us on. <laughs> Go figure. Halfway to Halifax, we've taken off from Toronto now, we're starting to have this turbulence. The pilot later said we hit the jet stream sideways. 
There was stuff flying around. I'm not kidding around the plane. The aisle was awash with everyone's spilled drinks. And I'm, you know, I'm, that's all I'm going to talk about that was going down the aisle. We're watching the wings. I'm looking out the window and I'm seeing the wings going up and down in this huge arc out the window. And as Jenny was getting a little stressed, <laughs> I called the stewardess over and I said, now tell me about this plane. How often do jets like this crash? And she said, well, sir, as a rule, only once. <laughs> Stress affects us all, doesn't it? In the first verse of Psalm 23 that we looked at last week, David the writer, uh, put right from the outset, places himself positionally before God. You are the shepherd, I'm not. The Lord is my shepherd. Jesus Christ is the Lord of my life, he says. He's calling the shots in my life just as he should for us. If he's not calling the shots, he's not Lord. And if he's not Lord, he's not shepherd. Because the Lord is my shepherd. To accept Jesus as Lord means three things, which we reviewed briefly. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. My sheep know me. They listen to my voice and they follow me. Know me, listen, follow. These three words are what it means to have Jesus as Lord. You know him, you listen to Jesus, and you follow Jesus. You put him in control, you make him shepherd. The next two verses are where we're going to spend our time today, beginning with, he makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside quiet ways. I tried to think of what is one word that is sort of the antithesis to this picture, and it's the same word that Jaira came up with. It's busyness, busyness. So, once again, in the spirit of having us enter in, I'm just going to ask you in your head to answer these questions, a little test to find out which side of the pastor's fence we're on on this one. Are you always in a hurry? Is your to-do list always unrealistically long, yes or no? Do you use your days off to catch up on your unfinished to-do list? Has more than one person ever told you to slow down already? Do you feel guilty when you relax. <laughs> Do you have to get sick to slow down? Let's take a moment and look at some of the things that bring us to the state that I call sheep deprivation, okay? Truth be told, truth be told, many of us know what sheep deprivation is. We know what it's all about, don't we? We know what it's like to live in crisis mode when we're consumed almost every day by figuring out all the ways we're going to keep the balls in the air, keep the plates spinning. There, Henry Kissinger, who was Secretary of State many years ago, said this, there cannot be a stressful crisis next week. My schedule is already full. Good luck with that, Henry. It's when we run harder and harder, faster and faster, from project to project, deadline to deadline. The RPMs, which stands for Revolutions of the Pasture, Pasture Per Minute, sorry, that's RPMs, Revolution of the Pasture, Pasture Per Minute, on the, on the Tacoma of our life get higher and higher. And then when it redlines in the dangerous range, you say, I can keep it in redline, and there will be no ill effects. Now, you know we all get our RPMs too high once in a while. That's life. If you're an accountant, tax person right now, you're probably redlining this month. We all do it occasionally. That's life and that's not the issue. The problem is when we redline permanently. We're, we're conf we, what's confusing about this is that the first thing that happens is things tend to go wooly wooly good. 
We have more friends than we know what to do with, more money, more success, more prestige. Externally, it looks fantastic. We start to think we can stay redlined the rest of our life with no ill effects, but we are wrong, dead wrong. We start to do what all redliners do. We begin to skim in life. We take the path of fleece resistance. We skim relationally. At once, deep and intimate marriage becomes increasingly superficial and shallow because you don't have the time. You don't have the energy that intimacy requires. We hydroplane over relational issues because we, we don't have any spare energy to deal with them. When the kids start acting out, redliners, redliners look away. They say, maybe kids' church will straighten them out. Maybe my spouse will. Maybe the school will. Kids are resilient. They'll be okay. Friendships become less important and less accountable. Then relationships are avoided altogether, and pretty soon no one has access to your heart anymore. The second thing redliners do is they skim emotionally. They don't pay attention to hurt. They don't process grief. They don't work through sadness. They don't even celebrate great highs anymore. Instead, they flatline emotionally so they can keep doing what it is that's got its hooks in them and is driving them so fast. The third deprived thing redliners do is they skim spiritually. There is no more time, no more energy to sit down with a text from Scripture and read it, reflect on it, mull over it, meditate on it, ruminate over it. There's no more long, slow prayers. Our prayers are, help God, I'm going at Mach 2. We're tearing around the pasture. We can't slow down to relate deeply with God. We're not engaged in his word. Prayer is shallow. Worship is hollow. We're skimming. Our heart shrinks. But the Bible teaches that the heart of a healthy sheep who follows the good shepherd should be gradually enlarging all the time. You live in red line too long, it will leave you with an empty cavern inside where a growing heart used to be. And you never thought that could happen to you. But in contrast to this, our verse today says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. The two words that stand out there are make and leads. They suggest something. They suggest a gentle persuasion from the shepherd. A shepherd patiently, persistently encouraging his sheep to follow him to the place where once their hunger and thirst are satisfied, he can cause them, provide for them so that they rest. The actual word there, lie down, is stretch out. <laughs> Guys, I know we can picture that, right? Going to go home this afternoon, stretch out, right? The writer Max Lucado puts it like this. Only one other living creature has as much trouble resting as we do. Not dogs, they doze. Not bears, they hibernate. Cats invented the cat nap. Sloths slumber 20 hours a day. 20 hours? That's who I was rooming with in university. <laughs> Most animals know how to rest. There is one exception. These creatures are woolly, simple-minded, and slow. No, not men on Sunday afternoons. Sheep. Sheep can't sleep. Maybe they don't have anything to count. <laughs> For sheep to sleep, everything must be just right. There's no room in their lives for stress. It's actually impossible for sheep to lie down unless four requirements are met. Think about yourselves in comparison here. First, they must be free from all fear. 
Sheep are very easily frightened. A stray jackrabbit running out from behind a bush can stampede a whole flock. When one startled sheep starts to run in fright, all of the others follow behind it in blind fear, not waiting to see actually, well, what caused this anyway? But nothing quiets a flock like seeing their shepherd in the field with them. Oh, he's here. And sheep will not lie down unless there's harmony in the flock. I don't know if you've ever known this. When there's this tension between rivals, when there's interpersonal, intersheep relational issues, the sheep can't lie down and rest. They must always stand up and be ready to fight and to get the pecking order right. But when the shepherd is around, all that goes out the window. They forget their rivalries. They stop fighting. They lie down. A sheep will not lie down unless they are content. We spent a lot of time talking about that last week. If there's flies or fleas are bothering them, whatever it is, they will not lie down. The shepherd, his job is to provide with relief, so they will be content. And sheep will not lie down unless they're full. That's me too. That's when I lie down. A hungry sheep is always on its feet, searching for another mouth of food, trying to satisfy this gnawing hunger. Shepherds had to search hard for green areas to feed their sheep. We're going to come back to that. You see, sheep cannot provide any of these things for themselves. Not the removal of fear, not harmony in the flock, not contentment, and not being full. None of that can they provide for themselves. They are virtually defenseless against even the smallest predator. They cannot calm each other with their presence or help each other in their suffering. They cannot spray themselves with insecticide. They can't even find their own food when their lives depend on it. They'd actually be hard-pressed to find their sweaters if they weren't wearing them. In short, sheep need help. Sheep need a shepherd. Sheep need a shepherd to lead them and make them lie down in green pastures. Without a shepherd, they cannot rest. Without a shepherd, frankly, neither can we. But in Jesus, we have a good shepherd who will do all these things for us and more. He calms our fears. He comforts us. He reconciles us with himself and teaches us how to reconcile with each other. And he gives us his peace that passes understanding. He feeds us with his life-giving spiritual food, the word of God. He even gave his life for us. Here's what I wish I could ask you. I wish I could ask for a confession of how many of you think that you're in that red line zone right now, but I found over time for that to be a very unproductive question because the people who need to admit they're in red line are the most likely least to do that. So another test instead. Aren't you loving this? You know you're redlining when you head out for parent-teacher night and you don't know which school to go to. You know you're redlining when you can unwind after work by watching the news. <laughs> you know you're redlining when if you take business-related, when you go to the washroom, you take business-related material to read. Oh, sad. You know you're redlining when your family gives you all the mail labeled occupant. If you found yourself identifying with any of these, you might also identify with Dick Vermeil. Dick Vermeil was coach for many years of the Philadelphia Eagles in the NFL. When the NFL went on strike and cut the season short a while back, all of a sudden, Dick had nothing to do. Vermeil was a workaholic who would actually sleep in his office for the entire football season because he was so focused on football. 
The strike's on, so one fall day, he and his wife went for a drive. And as they're driving down the street, he looks around and he says, what is wrong with all these trees? True story. Dick was from Southern California. His wife had to explain to him that in Philadelphia, they turned yellow in the fall. He'd never noticed in all the years he was there. He was that out of balance. At the end of that season, he resigned, said he was burned out, and didn't get back into coaching for 15 years. That is not the kind of life God wants us to live. The psalmist says, it's useless to rise early and go to bed late and work your wearied fingers to the bone. Don't you know he enjoys giving rest to those he loves? If you're burning, this is one of my favorite expressions, if, you, if you're burning the candle at both ends, you're not as bright as you think you are. Think about that. Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can actually do is go home and go to bed. Now, I say that, lock the doors for a minute here so you don't leave right now and go home and go to bed. It's past your bedtime. Past your, get it? Yeah. Okay, wow, is right. Okay, Jesus said the Sabbath... Did you know Jesus said this? He said the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people. Don't we sometimes think it was something that God wanted us to do for him? No, Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people. Jesus says it. Our best requires rest. During the French Revolution, they outlawed Sunday as a day of rest. Did you know that? Within a few years, they had to reinstate it, not for religious reasons, but because the health of the nation had collapsed. They were all burnt out. We've got to change our thinking about what is required here. We need a pacemaker to set the speed of our life because we are sheep and we just can't do it on our own. We need a shepherd, the only person wise enough that knows us inside and out better than we know ourselves is Jesus Christ, the good, the great shepherd. Are you living in sheep deprivation is the question this morning. Jesus says, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. We need a relationship with him where we exchange our pressures for his presence, where we exchange our pressures for his peace. When we live for God, it's not just the right way, it's the healthy way, it's the wholesome way, the whole way, the balanced way, and the most relaxing way, which sometimes doesn't seem all that obvious to us. The shepherd restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Quite often, especially in the New Testament, when the word soul is used, it refers to our mind, our will, and our emotions. That truest part of who we are deep down. Often, even, the words heart and soul are used interchangeably in Scripture to mean the same thing. But here... It's different. Here in Psalm 23, the word David uses that is translated soul is the Hebrew word nephesh. Nephesh, which has a much broader meaning. Nephesh actually means the whole person. The best way to understand the meaning of this word is to go back and see how it is used in the creation of man account back in Genesis chapter 2. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. A living nephesh is the word that's used there. It's the same thing that's used now that David uses. It clearly refers to not just the inner part of Adam, but to his entire being. Body, soul, spirit, the whole person. 
So when David writes that God restores his soul, he's intending that we understand that God restores our entire person, all of us, every part of us. We would use the word when we're restoring a car, right? When someone restores a car, they attempt to return the entire car, inside and out, to its original condition. David says that is what the shepherd does for his sheep. He restores them completely, inside and out. So that raises the question for us then, what does this restoration look like? Let's look at another psalm that will help us to understand what David is writing here. In Psalm 42, the descendants of Korah cry out to God about the condition of their souls, and they basically cry out, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? The term cast down would have been very familiar to everyone of that day. It was a shepherd's term. It describes a sheep who has turned over on its back and can't get back onto its feet again. Sheep are built in such a way that if they lay down on their side, their center of gravity can take them over onto their back with their legs sticking straight up in the air and they cannot get out of that position themselves. They're helpless to get back on their feet again. That position is called a cast down sheep. It kicks, it flails in the air, you can imagine. It bleeds, it cries out. It's vulnerable, it's hopeless, and it can't do a thing about it. Gas begins to collect in their stomach. It cuts off the air passage, and they suffocate. Not only that, their legs start to go numb in that position, and they can't do anything about that either. They need a shepherd to restore them to uprightness. And so do we. This Obviously, it's a dangerous situation for the sheep. If it's hot and dry, death can result in just a matter of hours. So moment by moment, the shepherd always takes inventory of his sheep to make sure none of them are missing because the one that's missing might be cast down, and in which case, there's only a few hours. If one is, he goes looking for that lost sheep. We're told that over and over in Scripture. And should a cast-down sheep be found, he knows it was from one of three reasons. So... If you can extrapolate here and think about us perhaps sometimes being cast down and, and helpless and hopeless, the first reason is that they're overweight. The sheep was overweight by eating too much. Sometimes we feed ourselves on the wrong spiritual food. Sometimes we get so full with stuff that isn't good for our souls, isn't good for us, and it just takes us down and we're cast down. Or they were, the sheep were looking for soft places. Sometimes sheep will find a nice, soft, hollow spot to lie down and look so inviting. The rest is great, it looks like, but the soft spot becomes a trap, and the sheep is unable to get on its feet. Center of gravity takes over, and over they go. Don't look for a cushy spot in life to serve or to follow the Lord. Don't look for one. He calls us to take up our cross and follow him. That's not being cast down. Thirdly, their wool becomes matted with mud and again changes the center of gravity. A sheep can actually get stuck in the mud when the dirt sticks to its thick wool. Wool in the Bible is a symbol of our selfish, sinful nature. In fact, the priest could not wear wool into the tabernacle in the presence of the Lord because it signified sin. Interesting, isn't it? When a child of God allows their wool to get woolly, woolly, dirty, sin becomes stockpiled in the heart. Without confession, without repentance, we fall into a pit that essentially we created for ourselves, and gravity sort of takes over, and we're helpless. But 
The shepherd's heart is to restore the sheep, but that doesn't just happen with a snap of the shepherd's finger. It takes time to restore a cast-down sheep. First, a shepherd will come to the sheep, laying on its back, with its legs sticking straight up in the air, just like that. Rather than immediately trying to raise it, the shepherd massages the four legs to get some circulation back in them while talking in a reassuring tone. Then he gently turns the sheep over, puts his hand under the sheep. The sheep can't stand. His legs are numb and has to actually lift up the sheep and help it to stand on its wobbly feet. He then holds it there for some time while the sheep begins to get equilibrium and the blood begins to flow back into the legs and it begins to get some stability when the shepherd feels that the shepherd can now stand on its own. He gently lets it go. Do you see the shepherd's involvement here in our lives? Like sheep, we have a tendency to wander away from the shepherd. And when we do that, we get further and further away from him, often without even noticing it. And sometimes we stop to rest in a place that is off the path that the shepherd has instead wanted us to stay on. And we end up on our back unable to right ourselves without the help of the shepherd. What a picture of what God wants to do for us here. When our whole life is upside down, right? And we're flailing around and we think it's hopeless, the Lord is our shepherd. He lovingly comes with reassuring words and tender hands. He picks up the lamb, the sheep, and sets us straight until we can get onto our own feet again and carries us until the stability is back. See, Jesus wants to restore your soul. If you've been cast down for any reason, he's the only one who can help you get back on your feet again. He's the only one who can return us to following him on the right path, to restore us completely, restore our souls completely, our whole person renewed, so that we can follow the shepherd as he leads us in the paths of righteousness. You'll notice here, all the way through this psalm, that the work of restoration is not our work. It's the shepherd's work. He is the restorer. Just as a cast sheep cannot right itself, we're incapable of restoring our life, getting back on the right path on our own. But the good news is, the great news is, the shepherd is more than capable of returning us to where we should be. The good shepherd not only feeds us, he leads us. He not only provides, he also guides. The good shepherd not only protects, he corrects and directs. But perhaps the picture of the shepherd does not equate with the one that you have in your mind. You see, we've been westernized in our thinking about shepherds. And it gets started by misinterpreting the phrase green pastures. I'm going to go out on a lamb here to say that many of us, when we hear green pastures, picture something like this. Sheep we can barely see in lush green grass up to their cute little ears as far as the eye can see. What a great picture. And more importantly, we have the corresponding picture of a shepherd now has a pretty cushy job in this situation, right? Take a look at these paintings which evoke that image. There's hardly a need for shepherd except maybe to open the gate into the next lush pasture and perhaps keep an eye out for predators. There's no need for feeding or leading. They've got it made in spades. What? But all this has given rise to the idea that shepherds, frankly, are kind of a lazy bunch who while away their time under a shade of a tree somewhere, who couldn't get any other job, and so now just are ending up loafing around watching the sheep 
make use of all the food in between their morning and afternoon naps. This was decidedly not the picture evoked in readers of Psalm 23 in the Middle East, and it is still not the picture evoked even to this day. This is what their green pastures look like. You say, I see the sheep, but where's the grass? Where's the green? There must be a different species they're having there of gravel-eating sheep. Fleece couldn't even live off what's there. But this is indeed their green pastures. Most of you know, of course, that the geography of Israel is made up much of this hilly wilderness broken up in places by lush river valleys and plains. There is only so much land to go around, though, so every bit of these lush areas is used to grow much more valuable crops than grass, while at the same time, the wilderness areas are only suitable for pasture and nothing else. This, this is the land of the shepherds. You are still looking for the green, aren't you? In this arid land, the only place where any moisture can be found is actually in the shade. Where's the shade? Under the rocks. Moisture collects under the rocks and, and beside the rocks and supports little shoots of grass to spring up and then along comes the sheep who prefers to look at the glass being hoof full rather than hoof empty and eats the green grass. Obviously then the only way they survive is by moving on to the next rock. One, two bites and it's gone. You gotta move on, on to the next blade of grass. They need to be constantly moving. They need to have the shepherd constantly moving them forward because to stay in one place, as you can see, would be to die. Usually, the sheep will form a wide line behind the shepherd, not a single file line. I mean, how do the, first the first sheep gets all the food and everybody else starves, right? No, they spread out in a long line, straight line behind the shepherd, uh, so that they all can have something to graze on as they walk behind them. This has been done for millennia to the point where there are sheep trails cut into the hills. Probably hard for you to see. Excuse me. <coughs> Excuse me for you to see that there, but um, there are sheep trails cut into the hills all over. By the way, <clears throat> just as an added side point, do you see on the right side of the screen there and the far left, trails going straight down? Goat trails. Sheep don't do that. But that's how they tell who's made the trail. Is that a goat trail or a sheep trail? Sheep go across, goats go up and down. Just the way it is, separates the sheep and the goats, I guess. So this constant moving to find the next blade is why a guiding shepherd is crucial to the, shepherd, to the sheep's survival, and why a sheep that is lost is in grave danger almost immediately, can't feed itself, can't look after itself, doesn't know where to go, almost certainly will not last more than a day on their own. It's critical then that the shepherd continually keep track, find a lost sheep quickly. Similarly, that the sheep never lose sight of him. Do you see the symbiotic thing happening here? It's critical that the shepherd never lose sight of the sheep, and it's critical that the sheep never lose sight of the shepherd. The shepherd's goal is to find enough food for the sheep today so they can rest. Tomorrow will be another day. This is not a picture of abundance, lush green grass everywhere, but rather a picture of the day-by-day, moment-by-moment, sheer dependency that the sheep has on the shepherd. It mirrors what our dependency in our, our good shepherd is supposed to be like. We're not supposed to have like green grass forever. If we did have that, we'd go, who needs God? It's not glitzy or romantic or even idyllic in the sense of abundance. 
but rather an acute dependency on our Lord to guide us, to feed us with the goal of making us righteous, taking us down the path of making right choices, doing the right things, living rightly. It's the best thing our shepherd can give us. God says, I will guide you on the path of righteousness, literally. Today, David might write, he keeps me on the right track. He keeps me on the upright track. It's easy to get off track in life. It's easy to become preoccupied with trivia, majoring in the minors. The good shepherd, my good shepherd is the one who keeps keeps me on track for life. So how do we become the sheep of things to come? How do we actually look forward to this? What, how, what needs to change? What, what's the process here? We need to do four things, and they won't be a surprise to you. We speak of them over and over and over again. The first is to admit we need a guide. When we're lost, do we want to admit it? Men? No. No, it's not easy to swallow our pride and sheepishly admit we are lost. So we don't. Instead, we stumble around and we get confused. Sheep by nature tend to wander to get off the path. They need a good shepherd, and so do we. Like the hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. This is the real problem for all of us. The fact is that most of the time, we don't want to follow God or anybody else. We want to go our own way. We don't want to admit we need direction, a guide. Sheep have poor vision. That's why they don't know if the path that they're going on is going over a cliff or not. Their vision only really lets them see the one ahead of them that they're following. They need a shepherd, someone to follow that they can just stay close to, and so do we. We also, like sheep, can't see very far ahead. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, much less next year or 10 years from now. We don't even know what's going to happen this afternoon for sure. So doesn't it make sense that we choose to follow the shepherd who can see what's going to happen? Doesn't it make sense to let him be our guide? We've all made a choice that at, at, at the time seemed right but later turned out to be wrong. Some paths lead to dead ends. They lead nowhere. That's why it's easy to get off track. Just like sheep tend to wander and can't see into the future, neither can we, and so we stumble around. But the first step is just to admit, God, I need you to guide me. I need a shepherd. Secondly, we've got to ask in faith for guidance. This is also tough for many of us. When we're lost, we, do we want to stop and ask for directions, guys? Never! It's not in the nature of man to stop and ask for directions, but it is God's desire for us. Thirdly, listen for God's response. God designed us to hear his voice. There is a part of us, our, our soul, that's made to re be a receiver of the guidance from God. That's what makes us human, by the way. Out of all the creatures God created and put on the earth, only human beings have the ability to tune in to God and hear what he's saying. If we're not in tune with God on a regular, daily, moment-by-moment -moment basis, we're going to miss God's path for our life. We're going to wander off. We're going to wander off the right path, the path he custom-made for each of us. God often moves us in directions we don't understand. If you listen... If you follow, you'll stay on his path. If you don't, you'll tend to live your own path, which inevitably leads to broken dreams, broken hearts, broken lives, broken homes. Our society is breaking down because people are not following the right path God intended for each of us to follow. The good news is that the path of righteousness is also the road to recovery. When you come to God saying, I'm way off base, I missed the path somewhere along the line, maybe early in life or maybe just a few days ago, he will guide you back on the right path once more. He will restore your soul. Some of you may have been thinking you're too far off the path for God to restore you or you wasted too much already of your life. I want to say to you, you're wrong, absolutely wrong. 
No matter how far off the path you've gone, the shepherd is looking for you to bring you back. He wants to restore you into the flock. It's what a good shepherd does. Finally, trust wholeheartedly in the leadership of the shepherd, even when you don't understand where he's taking you. If we're honest, what most of us would really like from God is for him to give us a complete roadmap of the life he has planned for us. And then we can look at the roadmap and decide if that's a journey we're willing to make. But that's not the way God works. Instead, he just gives us the next direction that we need to follow to remain on the right path. And unlike with Siri or GPS, there is no way for us to look ahead and see all the way to the destination that God wants to take us. But if you think about it, that really makes sense. If we know every step and detail of our lives, there would be no need for faith in God. So God often presents us with difficult circumstances and choices in our lives so that we'll remember that we need something far greater than ourselves to direct us. That's why the writer of Proverbs penned these familiar words. Trust in the Lord always. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Sheep cannot come up with their own right path. They have no sense of direction. So to remain alive and prosper, they have to commit themselves 100% to following the shepherd on the path that he has chosen for them. The sheep never know ahead of time where the shepherd is going to lead them, but they soon learn to trust that the shepherd knows what is best for them, even when that might not make sense to them. So perhaps instead of praying for God to reveal his will to us, we ought to be praying instead for God to, to develop our trust in him, our trust in his guidance, even before we know what it is, and even when it might not make sense to us. But at the same time, we must not make, take that commitment lightly. God does not promise to lead us on paths of prosperity or popularity or comfort or even happiness. He promises to lead us in the paths of righteousness. And that often includes pain and discomfort, if that's what's needed, to develop our character, our holiness. But that is the only way for our souls to be restored. So it is always worth it. God has custom-made plan for your life. He wants to be your guide. He'll hold your hand through life if you'll rest your soul in him alone. For the Lord my God leads me, leads me, and he's all I need. Would you bow in a word of prayer with me? Lord Jesus, we truly desire to match with our minds, with our wills, with our hearts, and with our feet what we sang earlier in our service here. We are so thankful that you are in the restoration business because the truth is our souls long for it and our souls are lost without it. Deep down, we long to be restored to our original condition, to have our whole being marked with rest and peace and quietness that is not disturbed by the things of this world. We acknowledge that so often we've, we've looked for any other shepherd who promises us what looks like a shortcut, a shortcut to that, that restful life, but who in the end can't deliver on any of those because Jesus, you alone are a good shepherd. You alone are the great one. Help us then this day to draw close to you. Help us to know you and know your voice. Teach us your ways. Lead us in the paths of upright living. Thank you that when we're cast down, you find us and help us to get on our spiritual feet. Lead us in the life plan that you've made for us and for your flock, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.